And when we start to understand our self-sabotage in those terms and we start to accept that this part, it may have a rubbish strategy, but it does have good reasons for doing what it do does, you can start to accept that part of the personality and bring it back on side. Now, people initially feel uncomfortable about that, but when you get to know yourself in this way, you'll realize that not only does that part have its good intentions, it'll also have a load of resources. That's a part of you that's gone through a very specific, important experience, and it will have grown strengths and abilities as a result of that. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while Hazel is a certified hypnotherapist, she's not yours. So we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. I want to welcome you to the show, Hazel. Listeners, if you're not familiar, Hazel Gale is a master practitioner of cognitive hypnotherapy, which we're going to talk a little bit about. Don't jump off the podcast yet and say that's not science-based because I think it's a really interesting conversation but also a former world kickboxing champion and a multiple national and European ABA boxing title winner. I'm actually excited to talk sports and stuff with you too, but following a physical and psychological burnout during her first few years of competing fighting, cognitive hypnotherapy helped Hazel to rebuild their physical strength and achieve a balanced, healthy emotional state. Empowered by the changes that she made for herself. Hazel trained as a therapist so that she could devote her time to helping others win their own emotional battles. And Hazel currently practices in London and specializes in performance-related issues in the pursuit of creative and professional goals. So a little treat for listeners today. We got your accent on the show. I love having people from around the world because American accents are the worst. But welcome. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm Hazel Gale. I'm a former athlete turned author, therapist author, and now co-founder of Betwixt the self-relief, so stress relief game, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. And my background is all over the place. I graduated from art school in my twenties, but because I had absolutely no self-confidence at all, I didn't pursue a career in the arts, which is a real shame. Instead, I went and worked in a bar, which is usually what you do with an art degree, and I'm totally honest. And in that bar, I met a guy that I fancied enough to follow him into a kickboxing gym. It did not work out with the guy, but that didn't matter because I fell head over heels in love with kickboxing instead. Started competing quite quickly after that. Won quite a lot of titles. I really felt a little bit like it was in a kind of Buffy the Vampire sort of way I'd found my calling. Because even though I came from this very academic family, my dad, was they were both scientists. Stamp collecting and bird watching were more their thing. They weren't interested in fighting. Even though I come from that place, I realized when I started fighting that I'd always had these. I was the one fantasizing, not about my wedding or some achievement, but fantasizing about being the one to save somebody in the street from a mugger when I was a kid. And so when I, when it turned out I was good at fighting, it felt like this was meant to be. And there's all sorts of stuff I could say about that. I won't get too deep about that yet. So I fought and I won some good titles. And from the outside, it probably looked like I really had a sorted existence. But from the inside, it was an entirely different story because I was chronically anxious. My body was breaking down. I was totally dissociated from, well, virtually everything. And, if, and finally, I just crashed and burned completely. Psychological and emotional and, and physical burnout. That even then, I couldn't properly accept that it was happening and go and get treatment. So I fought it and denied it for such a long time until ultimately I was forced to accept that maybe, just maybe, my approach to life and fighting and competition might have something to do with this thing that's happened to me, at which point I finally went to therapy. And that course of therapy turned my life around entirely, got me back in touch with who I was, what I felt, what I valued, what I found meaning in, and then back in touch with my body and my symptoms and allowed me to create boundaries around those things which meant that I was able to get back to a place of health and back to competing. 
But even though I did all that and I got some, again, some wins that would look great on paper, ultimately what that journey actually allowed me to do was to understand that I didn't want to be punching people in the face for a living. I didn't actually, it wasn't the right place for me to be. I was there for some other reason that having gone through the healing journey, I didn't need to. There was something I didn't need to prove anymore, I guess is a way to put it. So I trained as a therapist. I left fighting and, and boxing behind and, and started full-time practice. And that is how it's led me into write a book about it and create a game about it. And here we are. I think it's such an important journey for listeners to hear because I talk a lot about how physical health is impacted by mental health. And I think you just gave a really good example of how not only was your physical health improved from going to therapy and relieving stress and, and all of that stuff, but you also, I'm assuming, <laughs> got much improved physical health from no longer fighting people or being in that fight and flight state all the time with elevated cortisol and all that kind of stuff because, as you said, you no longer had something to prove. And I think that has been a journey of mine as a very high achieving, overachieving type person. The realization of, oh, I don't have to prove anything to anyone is a very unique state for some of us to reach. So I'm excited to talk more about that later. But first, I do want to talk about, I know you talk on social media. So I, listeners, we're going to put links in the show notes for you, but you can follow Hazel on Instagram at hazel.gail.therapy. And then as you mentioned, also the Betwixt app has TikTok and is an app and people can start using it for free. I know there's upgrades and different process, but actually Matt, my husband, used it and just to try it out and stuff like that. But there's a lot of things where we can connect you online. But in the meantime, one of the things that you talked about on Instagram is your ADHD. And when I was going through the research, something that I wasn't very surprised to see once I thought about it, but was super insightful to think about is the idea that sports and other physical activities can help improve symptoms of ADHD, specifically in those who are biologically female. And there was a 2020 study that found consistent participation in organized sports reliably predicted improved behavior and attentiveness in girls with ADHD. And interesting, there was no such association found for biological boys. And it went on to say that they think that's because uh, those who are male presenting are automatically put in sports or some sort of physical activity when they express like that physical agitation and they're, you know, impulsive or doing things physically. Automatically parenting is like, oh, let me do with the biological females. It presents differently. And it got me thinking about athleticism in general and how I wonder how ADHD played a role in your pursuit of athleticism, not just this idea of like, oh, I have something to prove, but also like it probably felt good to manage your symptoms a little bit if you didn't, if you weren't diagnosed at that time. Right. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. There's a whole, there's a whole load of stuff that we could talk about in relation to this. But first of all, definitely, you know, when I got my diagnosis, I spoke at length about sport with my psychiatrist, who was also a martial artist. And so we had this point of connection around it. And he said it was extremely common for people with ADHD to find themselves in combat sports, presumably because they are one of the few things that you can get involved in that is so... Uh, it's genuinely a life or death conflict kind of situation. And therefore, you have to focus and your body knows how to focus under such extreme levels of, of stress. And so that is in, it's really desirable for somebody who struggles to get into those situations. And it's not just, you don't have to go into something as extreme as, as boxing to get that, because I did also have that same thing when I was working in the bar and it was a busy Saturday night. It was exactly the same kind of, I would love those moments where I just got to be in the flow state doing the thing because it was so hard to get there otherwise. 
And I am sure that the conclusion those those researchers came to is absolutely right, that boys growing up are not only encouraged to go into sports, but they are allowed to be physical in their expression of things and girls are not. So if girls are then given this outlet of sport, it's a giving them something that they've never really been fully allowed to have before, whereas boys have always been allowed to do it. And I hope that's changing now, but yeah, traditionally that would certainly be the case. But for me, I don't know how much of that is true because I never, my pronouns are she, they. If I'd been born 20 years later, I'm 44 now. So when I was growing, when I was a teen, you know, our understanding of gender fluidity was just, it wasn't there. But if I was born 20 years later, I would definitely be they, them, if not possibly he, him. I've never related to he, him. I don't know if that would be the case. But either way, I know that I would have had a different experience in 20 years' time. When I grew up, I, way younger than I would have expected possible, forcefully rejected anything that smacked of femininity. I refused to wear trousers as soon as I was old enough to speak. I was talking about this just, with my, just this Christmas with my mum because my sister was saying, she was saying, yeah, but you associate with she, they now, don't you? Like, you're just, you're a woman, right? And I was like, I don't, it doesn't really bother me, but no, I don't really associate with it. Mum just not sugar head. She, no, she never has done. And that carried on with the, the way I acted. I acted like a little boy at school. I was just as disruptive and vocal and difficult as the little boys with ADHD that, that you expect. And that's, that's the, the way that girls with ADHD tend not to act, which means that it's been so much harder for me to get diagnosed um, now, recently, until recently. So I feel, yeah, I just acted like a little boy at school. So I don't know if for me there was this physical outlet was really a thing or not. I do know that I took it too far because it felt good and because it allowed me to get into the, into the present moment. I remember very early in my time fighting one of the coaches at the gym pulling me aside and saying, you've got a real ability and you are, you clearly love this and that's all great, but you can overdo it. You need to step back. You're doing too much. I don't want to see you in here for two training sessions every day. And I was, of course, and he was so absolutely right because I wasn't resting. I wasn't giving my body any time to rest. And because my brain is an ADHD brain that does not shut off, I was basically in vital flight the whole time. I hyper-focused on fighting. I was anxious. I couldn't sleep, which is just a normal thing with ADHD. So all of that played into my burnout because it was initially so great. It makes so much sense, but it's also like how wonderful that you had a coach that identified with that. When you said it, the first thing that my mind went to is I was a competitive strongman athlete and I had coaches who saw potential in me and pushed me to debilitating injury and not to their, not with any malintent or anything like that. But I think when you're a 20 something strong guy training late 30s, by like I physically had three children and I'm coming into the gym doing strongman after that, there was a lot of like small muscle movement and different kind of things that I needed to be doing to build up not just the big muscle groups that ultimately I was great at, but. I think like where you had uh, burnout and hormone and emotional crash, I had a physical crash from not having someone to say to me, hey, you need to not lift big today. You need to just do these kinds of things. And I think if there's a lesson that can be learned from that, it's that physical activity can be incredibly helpful to a lot of the things that we're talking about, whether it's ADHD or a plethora of other things as it relates to health, but it can also be incredibly harmful to quote unquote overtrain. And what that looks yeah. like can be very different for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's still something we're really hazy about. And ultimately, there is nothing in this world that is so healthy that you can't overdo it. And uh, even water, exactly. There's, <laughs> no, there's nothing. We're yeah. even over-breathing. If you've read the James Nestor book, Breath, we're even over-breathing. Even too much air is not good for us. So uh, yes, we, yes, we can overdo that. And I was exactly the same. Even though I had that coach that, made, that said that thing once to me that I ignored, I was still the one putting pressure on myself too much and training too much. And when I couldn't sleep, one of the things I write about in one of the moments of my book was a memory of a time I couldn't sleep. It was around one in the morning or something. And I got up 
walked to the gym and did a 10 mile run on the treadmill at the gym because I was like, well, you know, what else to do? And, and the really crazy thing is that as I was running, the gym was silent. The cleaner walked in at one point and smirked at me. My feet were just pounding on this treadmill in this sweaty boxing gym basement. And I felt superior as I was doing that in some way. I felt like I was the real deal now. I was like, this is what real gritty. I felt like I was in Rocky. And that was shortly before things really started to go downhill for me. I can remember because I remember my times were really good. My running times were really good then. I was a boxer and I was a sprinter. Doing a 10-mile run is not something that my body's particularly good at. It's never gonna, I'm never going to be good at that. I never would have been good at that. But I was running fast at that stage. And I even after going through the therapy and building my body back up slowly and all the stuff I did, I never got back to that level of fitness. So there is a, a very cautionary tale here. I don't know if it's possible to burn out completely and get back to your, a, a body of before. I don't know if it's possible. I don't know that I would want to either. Like, it sounds like you feel that way too, right? Because knowing that you, to get back to, quote unquote, that level of fitness, you know what sacrifices you're making in other areas of your life. And like, it's just not a payoff that's worth it to me. No. Yeah. One thing I would want is to get back to a place where my body had the potential for that level of fitness. Mm -hmm where I didn't have to be quite so careful about exertion. And that's one thing that I would say that I would still wish for. But all things considered, I'm generally happy with where I am today. And that does mean having an awareness of my body's warning signs when I pushed it too far and listening to them. And it means bailing on things and it means not taking on certain opportunities and all of that. You could look at it and say that really sucks. Or you could look at it and say that's somebody who knows how to prioritize and has been forced to understand her limits because that's just how I got there. Well, I think the other area that is fascinating to me is how this intertwines with self-sabotage, right? Because part of this is we are self-sabotaging ourselves with the idea of like, oh, I'm better than other people because I'm doing this thing. Or in my case, it was literally, I'm better than other people. I am stronger than every other woman in the state of Virginia, right? And there was something to like validate um, an emptiness that I was feeling in part of my life in other areas from that. And you talk a lot about that in your book, The Mind Monster Solution, and also in the work that you have done with a lot of clients in helping them identify what Brene Brown calls the story that we tell ourselves, right? Like this idea of self-sabotage and oftentimes we're not even realizing that is something that's happening. And I think in ADHD, that can often look like negative thoughts about yourself because your executive function is different, right? I see that a lot in my partner and it looks different in every single person when it comes to emotional dysregulation or we're talking about how it shows up in athleticism. It can also show up in your career or parenting, right? Like all these areas where the negative story you tell yourself or the mind monster that's beating you up, so to speak, plays a huge part. Can you talk a little bit about that concept and how it became a passion for you to write about? Mm. So when I was going through my whole recovery experience, I would hear so often people saying things like, you've got to make fear your friend or got to use your fear in the ring. And I remember just these abstract, and I don't know this is partly to do with my neurodivergence, but these abstract platitudes, as far as I could tell, that people were throwing at me would make me so angry. So I was like, how? What do you mean you make fear your friend? That doesn't make any sense at all. I, this thing is ruining my life. The symptoms I'm having are ruining my life. I can't just decide to make it my friend. There's a whole load of missing information here. And when I went to therapy, I got to understand a way. There's lots of ways through that gap of information, but I got to understand a way of doing it. So when I wrote my book, I really wanted and when I became a therapist, I then helped people with those that same journey for themselves. And when I wrote my book, I wanted to create a way for people to do that for themselves. And what it's about is 
starting by looking at this concept of self-sabotage, which can basically be anything, a thought, feeling, behavior, habit, whatever, that we look back on afterwards, probably that we do repeatedly, that we look back on afterwards and think, why the hell did I just do that? This is what I'm interested in. So you could look at the really big self-sabotages and you can look at the really small ones. Just saying that stupid thing when you're on the date with the person you fancy, like whatever, little things. And our natural reaction to those kinds of decisions, those kinds of behaviors, is to resist it. We, we, we want to say, I don't know what came over me, that wasn't the real me, and to just reject that part of our personality that's responsible for that and therefore reject the behavior and just get the hell rid of it. Rid of it. And in therapy, you'll hear this all the time. If you talk to people about their whatever it is, binge eating, binge drinking, underperformance, overachieving, whatever, if they hate the habit, they will tell you they want to just get rid of the part of their personality that does it. But that doesn't work. It's, first of all, impossible. You simply cannot sever off a part of your personality and expect it to disappear. And what's more, if you try to do that, as Eckhart Tolle famously said, what you resist persists. The harder you push that part of the personality away, the louder it's going to shout, the harder it's going to fight back. So we need another way. Our natural reaction to this doesn't work. And what I wanted to do in the book was to take a really creative look at this process. So you start off by imagining that you can see the part of your personality that makes you think, do, or feel this thing that you don't like. And you ask yourself what it would look like. Now, I know from 10 years of, of asking people this question that the majority of the time when people are in that resistance stage, they will tell you that it looks like some kind of amorphous blob of disgusting slime or something of that ilk because they just, it's, they don't want to look at it and therefore they're okay with it, not having a shape. They just want this thing gone. But as they go through the work and they start to understand first and most importantly, that the part of the personality that creates these destructive behaviors, no matter how destructive they are, that part has a positive intention, a positive reason for doing that thing. And there is nothing that doesn't fit into that category, even right to the top of the chain of dis destructive behaviors. If you look right up at the top at, I don't know how uh, careful I need to be about words here. If, it, if I was on TikTok, I'd be saying something about unaliving oneself. Even that had the positive intention behind it. It is the last and biggest possible way to escape pain. And when we start to understand our self-sabotage in those terms, and we start to accept that this part, it may have a rubbish strategy, but it does have good reasons for doing what it do does, you can start to accept that part of the personality and bring it back on side. Now, people initially feel uncomfortable about that, but when you get to know yourself in this way, you'll realize that not only does that part have its good intentions, it'll also have a load of resources as a part of you that's gone through a very specific, important experience, and it will have grown strengths and abilities as a result of that. By inviting this part back into, onto the team, so to speak, you get, regain access to those resources. And you also end up with a sense of control over your behaviors, which you do not have when you just resist and ignore them. During my recovery, when this was starting to all click into place, and uh, fighting was no longer petrifying. I was still nervous. I would never not be nervous. That would be ridiculous. But I, I wasn't completely dissociated to the point of, of not being able to remember a single thing that happened in the fight, which is my experience of the first few years. I realized it was a little bit like I, what had happened was I was no longer getting in the ring with two opponents. I now only had one opponent in the ring. I wasn't also fighting against my own sense of shame and fear and this part of me that whispers, you're a failure, you're not good enough, you're weak. Weakness was a huge one for me. I had to look that part of the personality in the eye. I had to look my monster in the eye to realize that it, of course it wasn't a monster. It's just a frightened, scared little version of me that had learned certain behaviors, had brought her a sense of comfort and love and had made her feel good about herself. And that's why when all these memories flooding into my mind of flexing my biceps at my dad's 40th birthday party and how he would love, love to watch me win the 40-yard dash or whatever it was at school, because I received praise from him and he wasn't around that much. My dad worked as a scientist, so he wasn't around much. So when he was around and he really showered me in love and affection when we did some competitive thing because he was hugely sporty, of course I learned was what I needed in order to feel good about myself. And seeing that made me, allowed me to reframe this whole idea of what I was doing as a fighter because it allowed me to friend, befriend my monster. Today's podcast is brought to you by Lumi. 
control body odor anywhere with Lumi deodorant and get $5 off your starter pack. That's over 40% off with promo code WholeView at LumiDeodorant.com. I even used my own code to save on a bundle because it is kiddo's favorite brand. And if having four teenagers doesn't qualify me to talk about body odors, I don't know what would. My kids, all of them have become frustrated with how most natural deodorants uh, cause irritation to their skin. But Lumi has been great for all of them, both gentle and effective. And that's because it is pH optimized, aluminum free, and deodorant that actually works and is safe enough for everyone. While the solid deodorant is traditionally great under the arms, they even have body wash that the teens find helpful for them, no more irritation. And now, even though they may anxiously sweat a little bit, they feel confident that they're not going to be stinky. We've got some, you would not believe how bad they are stinky feet in this house. And Lumi has helped fix the funk even through, you know, hot winter summers and weirdness. Recent trip to Hawaii, I took my Lumi lotion with me to put anywhere um, my skin folds over to prevent, you know, the stinky funk. Lumi just makes a huge difference. I've actually used Lumi for years. I love the unscented cream. And as I mentioned, put it places on my body that I'm not using like a stick deodorant and even our lady bits. Um, it was developed to be appropriate to use everywhere. So now we have a solution for pits, privates, and beyond that lasts a whopping 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, I recommend the mini body wash and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code WHOLEVIEW at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code WHOLEVIEW. That's L-U-M-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. It's interesting to think that we all have a different monster that shows up. Like, I I love the creativity of that. And I think as someone who has done a lot of training, I'm a foster parent of teenagers with severe trauma. So I have a lot of trauma-informed training. We talk a lot about behavior not being the same as... um like the need, right? The need is separate. And so if all you're doing is addressing behavior, then you're not actually meeting the need. And it's a different way of saying what you're talking about. And I think not just for ourselves, but as parents, as coworkers, as friends, if we see someone doing behavior that's odd, as you talked about, there's a full scale of different kind of behaviors that we might see that we're like, huh? Someone might say something super uncomfortable or awkward or physically be acting out. Teenagers, especially as the parent of four teenagers, like they are constantly pushing those boundaries. And some of that is their needs aren't being met as a child that is in an adult body and they're stuck wondering like, how do I get my needs met in terms of affection and comfort and support while still working on my own autonomy, right? Like it's this juxtaposition that, you know, we all go through as we become adults. When we transition from a child to an adult, it's a very weird time hormonally and behaviorally. And I think you're speaking to that underlying need that a lot of us grow up this inner child like what is the the thing that we lacked what is the need that we desired and how we end up adapting to that in sometimes a maladaptive way that no longer serves us or how do we still chase it as adults right like we we don't ever get that need fulfilled and so now we're chasing it instead of adapting to it and it can drive us to do some 
some really weird stuff. And it can also really negatively affect our health and our hormones specifically, like we were talking about earlier, um, you know, led to your burnout. It can lead to all kinds of things. What you were just saying has reminded me of something I didn't say earlier on that I think is important. And so the, my book and the game as well is about getting in touch with this monster. And in the book, I allow people to draw this probably amorphous blob of slime as their monster at the beginning. And they did check in repeatedly as the story goes on, as they get to know themselves better to see how this metaphor changes, because the metaphor helps us understand where we are in the process. And when I was writing the book, I realized towards the end of the book that I, especially I've just written this whole section on metaphor and how important the metaphors are that we apply to things. Well, I can't, I don't want to leave my readers with a monster at the end. Like they, I want the, the whole point of this journey to be understanding that we aren't, that what we see as a monster on the inside isn't necessarily monstrous. It just isn't that monstrous, full stop. But so I, yeah, we've reframed the concept of monster, but I actually just don't want even the name to be relevant. But I didn't know how to seamlessly do that. How do I just say, okay, so now forget the name monster and choose something else. And I was, around this time, I found my thesis I, uh, that I wrote for my art degree. And I remember picking up and smugly thinking, I'm going to read my thesis and see how much better I am at, at writing and communicating now. I read the first page of my thesis and I was like, I, it was so academic. I was like, I don't even know what half these words mean anymore. I've not got... Maybe I'm punch drunk. I haven't got clever. I've got stupid. I'm like, this is, had a complete full on panic. And then I caught myself and said, okay, right, this is a monster moment. This is a silly moment of self doubt, relaxed. As a, a good English person, I went to the kitchen and put the kettle on for a nice cup of tea because that's what you need when you're going to chill out is a cup of tea. And as the water was boiling in that moment of you know, post panic self kindness, that's what was happening there. That was when I realized, and I don't know where it came from, it just popped into my head, that the word monster is an anagram of the word mentors. And that's, of course, how you finish the book. You don't have one big monster that you're dealing with. You have a series, you have an, an, a whole team of mentors. Every experience is some kind of lesson, if we choose for it to be. Now, I'm not saying that this is not a toxic positivity, like it doesn't matter what you've been through, it's all positive thing. And that, that, ignore that, that, that's just not useful. But we don't, we can't make everything into a good thing, but we do have a, I think, uh, a duty to ourselves to look for meaning, even in the difficult things here. Now, in the process of, of my burnout and then recovery, my dad died and I was so close to my dad. And he, for years before he died, had been asking to come to one of my fights and I had always said no. I had always said, no, I need to wait until it's inside. I was not, not this one. I'm not ready yet. I need to wait until I'm good enough. I need to wait until I'm damn near perfect if I'm going to let my dad come and see me box. But of course, that didn't happen and he didn't get to come. And the, gr the grief that I experienced after his death was awful and was a big part of all of this, of me recognizing what part he played in it as well. But when I talk about monsters turning into mentors, people often say, well, what did, so what did your experience teach you? Well, it taught me a lot, but one of the really important things that I think of now is that when I had gone through that healing process and after my dad's death and the, the, this understanding of this one true regret that I have, which is that I never let him come to see me fight, I realized as a result of that whole experience that I had been operating from a faulty bit of logic in my head. I thought that by gaining success, covering myself in glory and all this stuff and accolade, I would get myself to a place where I was worthy of the connection of others. And I think lots of people or working from that unconscious piece of logic that doesn't really logic, because the truth is, it's the other way around. That it's only by being in connection with other people that I was able to even acknowledge my own success. And so it flipped completely. And thankfully, I've still got an amazing relationship with my mum and my sister. So after my dad died, I was able to come back around to those relationships and learn that fully with these amazing people in my life. And it still saddens me enormously that I didn't get to do it with my dad. But that is the thing that I learned as a result of giving in to the, to the monster before he died. It being a mentor that you can learn something from was a concept that I really loved as I was reading through the book. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But first, I want to talk about this 
kindness moment that you had, right? Like in order to get to this awakening that you yourself, you weren't even reaching for it. It happened because you allowed yourself this pause, this moment of kindness and compassion. What have you seen with others when you're working with clients talking about this idea of letting down this wall of facade, of strength, of denying yourself things, right? Of letting the monster come in and take away authentic connection or what whatever these positive things are in your life. How do we then, when you're working with clients for listeners, pause and give ourselves that moment of kindness and compassion? Because I think that's a really difficult thing to do, to catch it in the moment. Yeah, it, it is. And to get to the place where you actually catch it in the moment takes practice. My, my therapy teacher, Trevor Sylvester, used to talk about hindsight, midsight, foresight. Like you have to go through this stage of always being like, damn, I, mo- I missed a moment. A number of times before you get to the point of, hang on a minute, I'm inside a moment. Before you get to the point of, ah, oh, there's a potential moment coming. I can do something about it before it even happens. But we, we have to go through that stage of learning. I should also need to mention that I'm, I'm no longer practicing as a therapist. I'm now full-time on Betwixt. I meant to correct that at the beginning, just pro- probably not relevant, but just in case. And one of the things that Betwixt is focused on, I mean, Betwixt is about, is focused on allowing or facilitating the development of three things. And one of them is self-compassion. And the work around self-compassion that we are drawing from is the work of Dr. Kristen Neff, who has made, she's made waves in the wellness community relatively recently because her book, Self-Compassion, did pretty well. And she breaks self-compassion down into three components. The first being mindfulness, and that doesn't necessarily mean a mindfulness meditation practice. It just means the ability to be mindful of your present state. So knowing when you are struggling, catching negative thoughts, catching negative emotions. The second is self-kindness. So the ability to then relate to yourself as you would a friend who is struggling in those moments. And the third, which I absolutely love and find so beautiful as a component of self-compassion is she calls it a sense of common humanity. It is the knowledge that we're all in this together and that the big mess up moments are, although they feel at the moment, at the time, like the thing that sets us apart, that disconnects us from everyone else, they are the things that actually, there are very few things in this world that all of us will definitely experience and that is one of them. All of us will go through moments where we think, oh my God, I've just ruined this beyond repair and feel shame as a result of it. All of us, except of course, some people who are neurologically wired differently. So to answer your question about how do we get to the place where we give ourselves this moment of kindness, we need to practice on building those three skills. We need to spend some time. You can do it with journaling. You can do it just by thinking through it, probably, although journaling would be better. You can certainly do it in therapy and you can do it with talking to a friend. But you want to build your awareness around the repeating pattern enough so that you have the mindfulness in the moment, whether you catch it early on or not at first to catch yourself berating yourself. And it's, it is hard to do because we want to berate ourselves because, again, it's a part of our personality that creates that behavior. And that part, we've probably learned it from our parents telling us off when we were younger. And it believes that self-criticism is going to make us pull ourselves up and do things better. And, of course, in reality, it doesn't. But because there's a part of us that wants this and believes it's a good thing, it's not easy to catch it and stop it. And you don't want to actually just catch it and stop it. You need to start by catching it and noticing it and talking about it and understanding it. And there will be a point when you catch it and you feel differently about it. And if you want to apply the mind monster um, model to it, which to me made the big difference, I need things to be visual, I need there to be a kind of narrative around things for them to really click into place. For me, it made such a difference when I started to imagine my monster as a thing. It wasn't a thing. By this point, it was a small child version of me in her school PE kit. And to recognize that those moments when I'm hating myself for being weak or whatever. That's the part that is kicking up a fuss. And it's very hard to be angry with a five-year-old in a PE kit. It's very hard. It complete, it's a complete pattern interrupt. So if you want to apply the monster, the metaphor to it, then go ahead, go write down your monster, create an image of it. And in that moment, regardless of whether you have a cute monster by that point, or if you're already in, if you're still in the sort of scary monster phase, converse with it. Create a conversation, create distance between you and that part of your personality because it's only when you are stuck inside it that it can really do you any harm.
is the month of self-care and it is time to give yourself some love. Switch out some of your products for safe and effective ones. Give the brand that literally changed America's personal care industry a try. And I've got a new exclusive offer for you. While Beauty Counters Clean for All 20 code applies site-wide when using an email that's never ordered before, now you can apply it to already discounted regimens, which is up to 40% savings on a high-performance four-step routine. You've heard me talk before about how important it is to have a wash, prep, treatment, and protect step, and now you can get that whole bundle deeply discounted for optimizing effectiveness. And I would love to help you pick out just the right thing to love the skin that you're in. You can always email me at stacy at realeverything.com so that I can help you. But of course, you can choose your own. And if you don't love it, you have 60 days to return anything that you get from Beauty Counter. No questions asked. Plus, shopping with me supports my woman-owned small business, and you're voting with your wallet by choosing a certified B Corp that is mission-led and whose goal is to get safer products into the hands of everyone through health protective laws, while also giving back to people and the planet through sustainable fair trade ingredients. Go to beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth, just like any other website, and choose me, S-T-A-C-Y-T-O-T-H, so I can thank you. The concept of self-compassion, as you talked about, I haven't heard of that book or author, but I love being able to understand. I'm a very, I identify with Gretchen Rubin's uh, four tendencies. I'm a questioner. I need to learn everything and then I can understand it. And so for me, understanding the logic of self-compassion helps me apply it easier and it is also for me the it's my word of the year because I have such a difficult time with compassion for myself over the past couple of years I've come I'm a very empathetic person and I've come to have more compassion for others I see behaviors in others and now instead of just being really frustrated by that I can see now I think it's Visually, I can see their monster. I can literally see, oh, that person, I'm very sad for them that they feel the need to behave in this certain sort of way because they're getting their needs met in a very maladaptive sort of way, right? Like I can physically see that and have compassion for others, but I don't do a good job of that for myself. You know, when I say the awkward thing, at a party or whatever, I have huge anxiety and I don't sleep and I, you know, I overthink and I think and I think and I shame myself about it and whatever, right? And learning to be in that moment and to pause and to ha- have compassion and say, I made a mistake and mistakes are okay. Do I need to fix the mistake in terms of do I need to apologize to that person? Do I need to call out, hey, I'm sorry, that was weird and awkward. And learning, especially as a parent, to do that with my kids, right? Like oftentimes my monster surfaces in reacting impulsively instead of reacting the way that I really want to show up for my kids and learning that I can apologize to them. And I can say, hey, I'm sorry that I reacted that way. Let's try this again. Or what I meant to say is where I'm coming from is And having that conversation has really developed an incredibly strong relationship with the people around me and improved in so many ways. And I think this really ties into, as you were talking in your book about while you're not practicing anymore, when you were doing cognitive hypnotherapy, the idea really struck me as being super powerful because when we go into a trance or, as you mentioned earlier, dissociation, I think those kinds of understandings are something that people get, right? They're like, oh, yeah, but you talk about it in the book as when you're driving to a place that you go all the time or you're driving home late at night and you sometimes like arrive at your house and you're like, I don't even remember that drive at all. That is a trance. And you do a fantastic job of talking about how we create these trances in our life that are not serving us, that are not getting us home anymore. They're taking us to a place we don't want to go. 
Can you talk a little bit about that as it relates to the the work that you did to untrans people versus as you talk the clock watchers and that you you give a lot of different mm. funny examples of what people think hypnosis is. Oh God, yeah, uh, yeah, I, yes. I don't have a goatee beard. I don't have <laughs> a stopwatch, pocket watch. That's it, not stopwatch. <laughs> do, do probably have one of those that I'm going to swing in front of you. Hey, so cognitive hypnotherapy works on the basis that that trance is a natural everyday occurrence. That we go into these trance states, just as you said. Anytime we get into the car and just go through the motions, we aren't conscious. We aren't in a state of pure consciousness driving. If you we were, we would crash because you need much more available brain space uh, than just your conscious mind uh, to be going through the motions of doing something complex like driving, which you have to go into a state of auto, auto drive, literally, to do. And so if trance is just a natural part of being a human, and we have effective and ineffective trance states. So to go into a state of, and we have trance identities too. So I, when I do public speaking, I go into a version of myself that stands in a certain way and speaks in a certain way. And that is, I'm going into my public speaking trance and I have worked on developing this ability over the course of the years. And when I get into that state, it's great. But before I had done all that work, my public speaking trance was not so effective. I was completely dissociated, absolutely petrified, stammering and stuttering, stammers and stutters run in my family. As soon as I get nervous, you'll hear me oh, da, 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 da. Sorry, really tripping over my words. And as soon as I notice myself doing that, I freak out even more. And then it happens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I've had both experiences of a very ineffective trance state on stage and a very effective trance state on stage. And so the idea with cognitive hypnotherapy is to help people dehypnotize themselves out of the ineffective trance states rather than this kind of woo notion of I'm going to put you in this magical trance state of hypnosis with my pocket watch, do something special to your brain and you're going to wake up fixed. That unfortunately is not a real thing. It's not going to happen. And one of the most annoying things about being a cognitive hypnotherapist is having to dispel that myth every single time a new client comes to you. I actually had a client once ask, once say to me, he was half joking, but he was really serious. It was, he, was, he said, I thought you were just going to send me to sleep, hit me, slap me around the face with a wet fish a few times and I'd wake up fixed. And I was like, yeah, I'm really sorry, but I'm out of fish. There's no way that's going to happen. So yes, that's the idea of the trance state. And once you start to see it in that way, you will recognize it all over the place. And you know what's the reason we are doing this kind of work with Betwixt is one of the best ways to watch people go into trance is to see them experiencing story. We do it when we're watching a movie. Certain things can happen to us when we're in a trance state. We can dissociate, we can positive or negative hallucinates. We can see things that we can imagine things that aren't there. And we can, that doesn't mean that we're actually like on drugs hallucinating a thing. It just means for a moment, we think we see something and we can negative hallucinate, which means we don't see a thing that is there, which is what you're doing every single time you lose your keys and then you find them on the table in front of you. So there's certain things that can happen in a trance state and you'll see these things happening. One of them is uh, distortion of physical sensation. Most of people will know what it's like to have a very bad back, but then to be so engrossed in a movie or a book that they forgot about their back pain for a period of time. That's because they've gone in, the story has sent them into a trance state. And I heard on a, the Huberman Lab podcast a while ago, this amazing story about them doing some biofeedback stuff with people who were listening to a spoken story. And there's different times in different parts of the world when these people sat down and listened to a story, the same story. And as they listened to this story, no matter how old they were or what they're doing their lives or where they came from, their heartbeats synchronized. How amazing is that? So story can take us into this state that actually changes our physiological sense, our physical physiological body, and connect us to other people in this really intrinsic way. So we wanted with Betwixt to write a story that was designed to help with mental health, that was it is interspersed with these tools from psychology and therapy that can help us to develop the skills we want to as a part of the story rather than having to learn them as abstract clinical things which is just so much harder to keep hold of. One of the other examples that you gave that I really resonated with. So just to be clear, Twix is the 
app that is available. And then we're also talking about your book, The My Monster Solution. So when I say most of the quotes and different things that I'm pulling are from the book, there's also this engaging way to apply a lot of the things from the book in the app, if that's a better format for someone, a listener. Um, But one of the things that you talked about in the book is this example of a comfort eater. And it was like, you put words to something that I've been trying to describe to people for a really long time, which is that for a long time for me, it was, oh, I'm going to, I'm feeling bad. My body goes into that trance state to comfort eat in a trance. Like there wasn't a way, I wasn't even conscious that it was happening, let alone like being able to stop it. Because as you described, oh, I'm uncomfortable in this moment. How do I get comfortable? Oh, I know I'll go to the fridge. And that monster moment, so to speak, is really, as you described it, and I'm quoting from the book, an unwanted trance behavior. And I think that was a really well, like, succinct understanding of what it is that you're trying to talk about in terms of like, I I don't also want to be toxic positivity and I also don't want to lack accountability or responsibility. But at the same time, this is not something that anyone is consciously doing. Like there is no guilt or shame or anything about that. It is, this is a behavior that was learned at some point in your life because it solved a need that you had that wasn't being met. And now as an adult capable of working on yourself and healing and recognizing these things, you can say, that isn't serving me the way that I needed it to before. Now I need to be comforted. I'm uncomfortable. Maybe I'm making a conscious choice to have this ice cream because it's going to give me a, a burst of serotonin and feel good. But also what else could I do? Could I pause in this moment and pet my dog? Could I go for a walk outside and get sunshine and fresh air? Could I do some other things to get more comfortable than I was? And I think that's a hard thing to do, as we've talked about, but it is also something that I know a lot of people would relate to. And so I wanted to give that example. But I also want to say you you talked about the fish, but you conclude the section because you It's just like a little like, hey, I'm not, this is not a hypnotherapy book, but I do want to like help you understand where trance comes into this. And then you conclude the section by saying like, you don't really need a mustachioed pocket watch swinging performer. We are our own hypnotists and we just need to learn how to effective suggestions to ourselves. And to me, that kind of brought full circle a lot of the work that you're doing and a lot of the experience that you've had and like where you're coming from, not just your own personal journey, but having worked with a lot of people and and seeing that perspective. Yeah. People think when they are dealing with a habit, that they, whether it's a habit of thought, feeling or behavior that they have been engaging with for a very long time, let's say a smoker who's been smoking for 40 years, they can be extremely convinced they can't live without it. But there are, we, that, that will be, they will have a smoking trance and it is very much known. It's a thing that's happening, you know, every what, half an hour or something and has been for 40 years. Sure, it's not going to be necessarily that easy, although people sometimes can find it much easier than they think it's going to be to do something like give up smoking once they've made the decision that they're going to. But the way I'd often think about it is there are so many things that we once believed wholeheartedly and there are so many but we changed them. So as a somebody growing up in, in, in England, not everybody believes in Father Christmas as a child. I, I was one of the people who believed in Father Christmas as a child. Like fully 100%. In fact, I believed in Father Christmas for longer than most because my parents tricked us the one year when we were going to Australia over Christmas. My mum hopped out of the car saying she needed the loo, put our stockings on our beds ready for when we returned. So when we came back and the stockings were there, even though we hadn't been, we really believed that Father Christmas was a thing. But I don't believe that anymore. I no longer act as if Father Christmas is true. I have gone from, I know it's, people say, oh, that's not the same, but it is. 
We like to believe that we don't change. If you put the words people don't into Google, the first thing it will suggest you are looking for is change. People don't change. We like to believe that's true and it's just not. It's not true. I've changed enormously in the last couple of years. I've changed even more in the last 10. I'm not the same person I was when I wrote that book. I'm definitely not the same person I was when I was fighting for titles. And I sure as hell aren't the same person I was when I was in my Spider-Man jumpsuit leaving in Father Christmas. We change all the time. We just need to learn how to encourage ourselves to change in the way we want to or to open up these blocked feeling areas. And that is a case of dehypnotizing yourself out of these negative trance states. I love to end the show by leaving listeners with something positive and actionable that they can take to be a service to work on themselves. So I know your top suggestion would be to download the Betwixt app. Beyond that, I'm wondering if you have some suggestions and I'm going to give you the answer and say, I would love if you could share your grounding tool with the four questions to ask yourself as people are working on this pause and the change. This is like a a recurring theme throughout your book. And I think they're really great way to have someone walk away today and be like, okay, I can ask myself these questions to pause and change some behaviors. Mm -hmm. So, okay, talking about diving, diving down, the diving down technique, correct? Is it called diving down? It's, you refer to it as grounding tools. Like, what am I thinking? Yeah. What am I? Yeah. It, yes, it is a way. It's a way of pausing. Actually, it's basically a way of pausing and self-distancing. I was talking earlier on about self-distancing being part of, actually, I don't think I did talking about self-distancing being a part of the betwixt experience, but it is a big part of it. Self-distancing is the act of creating distance from yourself and therefore seeing yourself in a more objective way. Diving down is a way of doing that but by coming in from a place of awareness of what's going on and then shaking up your idea on reality. So we get so completely wedded to our own negative stories and our own perspectives. If you've got a friend who thinks, who believes they're ugly, for example, you'll know how impossible it is to tell them they look nice. They just, it's not going to get through. And we get so wedded to these things. But there is always another perspective. In fact, there is almost always the opposite perspective will be true to somebody else. So this is a process that allows us to start to look beyond our limits. So you ask four questions. The first is, what am I thinking? Catch the words that are running through your mind. You can do this by writing almost like morning pages, stream of consciousness, thoughts down, or you can do it just by turning your thoughts into words and thinking them and checking them out. You're not analyzing them. You're not changing them. You are just noticing what's there. Then you ask, what am I feeling? You drop your awareness into your body and you pay attention to the physical experience of your emotions. So for me, if I'm feeling nervous before something like public speaking or recording a podcast, I always get a little nervous beforehand. And what I'll feel is a tightening and almost explosive sort of energy in my chest and throat. And if I don't pay attention to it, that will just make me up. It will make me into this sort of jittery, flighty version of myself that that doesn't do a great talk, if I'm honest. But if I notice it, I can get to a place where it starts to dissipate quite more quickly. So what am I thinking? Notice the thoughts. What am I feeling? Notice the feelings. And then the important question, what's the story I'm telling myself? What's my monster telling me right now? What's my monster story? So then the all important question, which is what's the monster story? What's the story I'm telling myself, which is negative in this moment? So if I was in a moment of fear before a podcast, I might be thinking something along the lines of, I'm going to ramble and be boring and say, make myself look stupid. And again, we try to run away from these thoughts as if they'll disappear. And if we do that, we make them feel more true. So we need to just stare them in the face, look at them. Okay. So that's what I'm afraid of right now. And then the final question is lots of different versions of this. And the one I go with these days is what's a better story? But really what you're asking yourself in that moment is what if I didn't believe that thing? What if I wasn't in this trance state where I believed that Like it felt true to me that I was going to look like an idiot in this talk or this podcast or whatever. What might I believe instead? Maybe I could believe that I've got important things to say that I'm excited to share. Maybe that would be a better thing to believe. And that's it. You take yourself on this journey through thoughts, the feelings, the belief systems. That's what the story, the the underlying stories, the fears, fear based beliefs into a better perspective. And then you carry on with your day. It can take 
20 seconds and it can be remarkably refreshing. I love that you're working on that fourth step because it does even evolve in the book, right? Like that fourth question to ask. And it reminds me, I don't know if you know the work of Michelle Fuller, but she wrote a book called Hello Fears and very similar to how you're phrasing it. What she says is, okay, you, you have this fear, the worst thing that you're thinking of, right? Like your monster story. How to flip it is to say, what's the best that could happen? Your brain is saying, what's the worst that could happen? Mm -hmm. So then she says, now ask yourself, what's the best that could happen? And just to even just to focus on that energy, not to be toxically positive or anything, but just to like open yourself to the possibility that something other than negativity can happen is incredibly powerful. So I, I love that even since you wrote the book, you're evolving and thinking about that. And I think sharing with listeners just to ask yourself, like, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? And what's the story that I'm telling myself, my monster story? Just those things can often have a huge impact to be like, that's not true. I'm not incapable. I'm not whatever. Like just to call it out is very helpful and powerful. So thank you for sharing all of that. Was there anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to share about? I know You've got a lot going on with the app these days, and we talked a little bit about that. I think that I haven't actually explained what the app is, so maybe I could just yeah. do a one-minute intro for the end. So Betwixt is a, it's a fantasy text-based adventure game that leads you to clarity, courage, self-insight. It has been shown in studies that awaiting publication to significantly de decrease stress and anxiety. And it does so by allowing you to become the lead character in this fantasy story through a magical world called The In-Between that responds to your thoughts and feelings. And you, in conversation with this mysterious character called The Voice, gradually build three important things. The first being self-awareness. You learn about the different elements of yourself. You start to learn to see yourself more clearly from a distance as well as from the inside out. Also self-compassion. From that basis of, okay, this is who I am, you then start to develop, and I like that person, or I can accept that person because this is absolutely vital. So self-compassion, as we were talking about with the Kristen Neff stuff earlier on. And finally, self-distancing, which is a really effective form um, of emotion regulation, a, a tool for emotion regulation, which as someone with ADHD, I have had to work very hard at developing. We don't have great emotion regulation naturally as ADHD is. And this was evidenced by my tantrums and things when I was younger that all made sense later and just how big my emotions were around fighting, which again, all made sense later. And self-distancing is just the simplest. There are so many simple ways to self-distance and it's so powerful. And if you just learn one, like talking to yourself in the second person, for example, which I do religiously now, rather than the first person. So second person, meaning I say, you are feeling this, that, and the other to myself, rather than I am feeling this, that, and the other. Just that, just that will literally change your life. So the game is about helping people develop those three selves, self-awareness, self-compassion, self-distancing, but all while on an epic journey that feels curious and magical and enjoyable in and of itself. So it's an easier thing to come back to than a clinical, dry self-help app. And it's bringing in your artistic and creative side as well as your therapeutic side, which makes so much sense why it is a medium that you're leaning into. and. It also strikes me that of the ADHD people that I know in my life, they all love fantasy and storytelling. And I think it's that you can get sucked into a story and you can really focus in on it. And I can see how this would be incredibly useful tool for people who, when they're wanting to lean into a coping mechanism that doesn't serve them, to instead open an app and learn a little bit about yourself and go through this process using that. Thank you for all that you're doing to help others from learn from your journey, right? Like other people are then getting to go on their own journey and learn from that. I appreciate all that you're doing to share with everyone and friends. We've now reached the end of the episode, but don't turn it off yet because you need to go leave a review and whatever podcast app you're using and you can go to realeverything.com so you can find more from Hazel as well as about the app on TikTok and Instagram at betwixt.app. And that's B-E-T-W-I-X-T, as well as on 
Hazel's website, hazelgale.com, can connect everybody to everything. But listeners, I want to thank you so much for tuning in and being here today. We put the full list of resources, including the studies that we've mentioned and some other things in the show notes for you at realeverything.com. And you can head to patreon.com slash the whole view to get all of our shows delivered to your inbox ad free. It's a great way to support the show. Another great way to support the show is to leave a review in whatever podcast app you're using. And as always, we appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal change because no one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can choose to become better versions of ourselves for ourselves. Thank you so much for being here, Hazel. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.